This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the Heartland Daily Podcast. Uh, this is the uh, school reform news of uh, version of the podcast. I'm your host, uh, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, you're probably used to hearing about me uh, from the uh, illiteracy, pod- illiteracy podcast, but I'm uh, pinch hitting again today for a School Reform News podcast. We got a little uh, special episode here for you coming up. So uh, just a reminder, if you like uh, this podcast, uh, please consider giving a five-star review for the Heartland Daily Podcast and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And we have a very special guest today. Our guest is uh, Jonathan Emord. And uh, Mr. Emord is a constitutional and administrative lawyer who has appeared before the federal courts and agencies for 35 years. Uh, He is the only attorney in American history to have defeated the U.S. Food and Drug Administration eight times in federal court. And he has served as an attorney for the Federal Communications Commission during the Reagan administration and was also vice president at the Cato Institute. Uh, Mr. E. Mort is the author of numerous published works and five books, including Freedom, Technology, and the First Amendment, The Rise of Tyranny, Global Censorship of Health Information, and Restore the Republic. Uh, He is here to discuss his commentary on critical race theory, which is appearing in the current issue of School Reform News, uh, as well as his newest book, The Authoritarians, uh, their Assault on Individual Liberty, the Constitution, and Free Enterprise from the 19th Century to the Present, which was published back in February by Morgan James Publishing. So, uh, Mr. Emor, thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure. Well, great to be with you, Tim. So, um, like I said, I guess we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the book a little first, uh, because that will lead, lead us into the commentary you wrote on critical race theory. So, um, so what made you want to write this book? Uh, who are... Who exactly are the authoritarians? Uh, who who is in that group? Well, uh, I, I was the inspiration for the book largely came from the last election, but in particular uh, preceding the election when Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer announced that they would have no problem supporting uh, Bernie Sanders uh, if he were at that uh, voted uh, uh, the front runner. And uh, and essentially, uh, they plainly indicated they would accept the socialist agenda. And of course, Joe Biden uh, has sold his soul to the socialists. And so we have a socialist agenda operating nationally. So uh, as that was all happening, I uh, felt obliged to write the book because I had spent the better part of my entire career fighting the federal bureaucracy and watching it increasingly become taken over uh, uh, by uh, socialists, those who uh, believe that the uh, government ought to plan all economic activity and regulate social life. Um, And so that was the inspiration for the book. Um, And uh, the book is a very detailed history of the rise of uh, Hegelian collectivism in the United States and the capture of that way of thinking in uh, in the bureaucracy 
at its outset and forward. And the primary individuals who were responsible from the 1880s forward in uh, using the bureaucracy, using the independent regulatory agencies as a way to defeat the Constitution's limits on power so as to permit a combination of legislative, executive, and judicial power in single hands and a, uh, a planned economy and a planned uh, um, control over all aspects of life. And this was, this was popular in the antebellum South uh, in, uh, as a justification for slavery. This arose, this way of thinking, this authoritarianism arose as a justification for uh, slavery and that it was deemed to be the best means by which to control an inferior race and to subject them and to enable them to have cradle to grave uh, care by a benevolent master, and that progress was only possible, so thought um, the advocates of slavery and the academic advocates of slavery, as well as John Calhoun, uh, that that you really do have to have a mudsill or a, a, a base race upon which to elevate a superior race. And they found uh, comfort in Hegelian socialism because it defended slavery as a necessary uh, part of the dialectic, the uh, Hegelian dialectic. And so, uh, remarkably, uh, the South adopted socialism as its defense for slavery. That ideology didn't die with the abolition of slavery in the 13th Amendment. Uh, but uh, rather uh, reared its ugly head in the progressive era and became the uh, primary motivation for the creation of the administrative state and indeed succeeded magnificently in defeating the Constitution and its strictures on power, enabling the administrative state to reach its pinnacle today with uh, the overwhelming majority of all federal laws, not the product of those we elect, but rather regulations from the administrative state, and that state is largely unaccountable to the courts, Congress, and the American people. So that is the, that is the story laid out uh, in detail in the book. Yeah, could you uh, I, I just, um, you mentioned the administrative state and uh, uh, all these laws that are um, and regulations that are, uh, that are passed that have no oversight via Congress or uh, anything like that. Could you uh, expand uh, or because you have a chapter in the book uh, titled uh, "Administrative it's Administrative Tyranny," um, could you just uh, expand on that and just uh, give everybody a little uh, uh, just sort of brief uh, rundown on what uh, what the problem is with the administrative state today? How big of a problem it is? Yes, uh, it's an enormous threat to individual liberty and to a free market, uh, designedly so. Um, it, uh, it is not uh, restricted by uh, the constitutional uh, provisions that govern the federal courts. So, for example, before an administrative agency, you do not have a right against self-incrimination. You do not have a right to trial by jury. You do not have a guarantee against administrative warrants or what are called general warrants that were banned by the Fourth Amendment. 
you are not assured of uh, innocence until your guilt is proven. Rather, you're presumptively guilty until you prove your innocence. Um, the agencies operate in an authoritarian or tyrannical manner. And as a consequence, regulations are passed uh, without any necessity for it to tie back to a specific uh, legislative enactment. They loosely tie them to those enactments these days. And as a result, the vast majority of law is really regulatory, not statutory, and it's interpretive. Uh, as a consequence, it frequently causes the agency to actually uh, pursue leg leg uh, uh, legal mandates that contradict statutory provisions. And yet uh, also agency decisions are broadly deferred to by the federal courts. So if you are uh, uh, found guilty of an offense by an agency, that is if you are found to have violated an administrative provision, uh, you will suffer the consequences. And when you uh, ultimately have an opportunity to appeal to the federal courts in the overwhelming majority of cases, the courts simply defer to the findings of fact and conclusions of law of the agency, and there is no independent judicial review. So another constitutional guarantee, that of independent judicial review, is denied you if you are the victim of regulatory enforcement. It is, a, it is equivalent to, the administrative state is equivalent to the courts of Star Chamber or the courts of High Commission uh, from the uh, from uh, the 16th, 15th, 14th century England uh, in that they are political bodies. They're run by political uh, appointees uh, and they uh, operate largely in transgression of individual rights to pursue what is deemed the public interest. That is a, 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 a defined common good, which is supposedly in the early days of the regulatory state, divined by experts who had vastly more knowledge than the typical person, so they said, and could therefore decide better what was in that individual's best interest than, than the individual. So it's a supposition, it's a, it's a superimposition of authority over e each individual predicated on the notion that Experts are better able to discern what's in the best interest of an individual than that individual, him or herself. Uh, they operate based on collectivism and, and broad notions, broad prejudices. So they operate by prior restraint, which means that they, unlike the uh, system devised under the English common law and under English positive law adopted in, under the constitutional system, they don't. Uh, depend upon proof of your transgression of uh, uh, in order to apply restrictions on your liberties. Rather, they categorize you as in a class that is to be regulated and your liberties are deprived even if you do not commit the uh, alleged offense that is the basis for adoption of the regulation. So in many, many respects, the administrative state has deprived us of our liberties that were guaranteed by the Constitution, and they operate in a tyrannical manner, uh, destructive of both individual liberty and free enterprise. Gotcha. Okay. Um, now to move uh, 
move to your uh, essay on uh, critical race theory uh, for a bit, and then we'll I'll try to tie it back into the book a little later. Um, like you don't you don't talk about critical race theory in your book, but uh, the two are are definitely connected. Uh, what I'm sh- I'm sure there's a lot of people people listening home. A lot of them have heard uh, about critical race theory. Um, they might not know exactly what it entails, what it is. So if you could, uh, why don't uh, just uh, if you could just do a little a little brief primer on what is critical race theory, and then um, and then why are you uh, why are you opposed to it? Why are you going after it? Okay, well, there is a little discussion of critical race theory in the book. A little but bit, but, yeah, I mean, but I mean, it's not the focus. No, of the, yeah. it's not. No. Yeah. Uh, so critical race theory is uh, Marxist education, essentially. Uh, and the reason why I say that is it, it operates on the presumption that all history, all economics, all sociology needs to be assessed based on uh, racial uh, uh, considerations and those considerations start in the educational context with overt racism. That is to say, uh, children, for example, in preschool through uh, grade 12, and then also in the collegiate level in a critical race environment, are divided based on their color of their skin. So, Children of color are categorized as those who are oppressed uh, in the Marxist uh, language, dialectic language. They are the oppressed and uh, children who are white are the oppressors. And children who are white are told that they cannot escape uh, their white privilege, uh, which comes based entirely upon their pigment. Um, they are guilty of white supremacy regardless of whether they have committed any act of discrimination because this racism is said to be implicit in their skin color. Uh, Then uh, children of color are said to be uh, perpetually oppressed by a system of systemic racism. All institutions in our society are defined as systemically racist government, business, education, and all social relationships are said to be inextricably and irredeemably uh, uh, infected with systemic racism. Now, um, the upshot of this is that those who uh, are taught to believe this, and when you indoctrinate, and that's what it is, it's a form of indoctrination, it's propagandistic, it's not educational, doesn't doesn't portray history accurately, distorts history to achieve this view that it is all based, all relationships are based on this racial divide. Um, they they achieve uh, a destruction in the human character because they cause children of color to believe that they are incapable of succeeding in a systemically racist world, and therefore, regardless of what they do. They will never truly succeed, uh, regardless of, of how uh, uh, talented they are, their individual merits. Those will not matter because in the end, they will be victimized by systemic racism. Uh, white children are taught that no matter what they do, they are guilty of, of white supremacy and that they will always be oppressors 
of those who are of color. Now, this causes uh, children to hate themselves, to hate each other, to hate their country, and to hate the free market. In other words, this causes them, if they accept all of it, to uh, be enemies of their own country, uh, potential threats to their own uh, people. Other Amer Americans are all distinguished based on race. Their demanded uh, education demands that they view everyone based on their pigment, as opposed to what Martin Luther King called for, the content of their character. And this then leads to animus, hatred, um, racism, and uh, perpetuates stereotypes and causes people to be viewed uh, not individually, but in the collective. And the effect is to destroy meritocracy in education. Uh, and it is intentionally applied to achieve that end, to destroy meritocracy. So any instance of superior grades is said to be the product of systemic racism, is said to benefit whites in a, to a greater extent than blacks or people of color and is therefore uh, destroyed. So you no longer have merit-based education. You no longer have grades based on achievement. You have, instead, you divide uh, people based on race and you essentially assign to them in a socialist manner their grades. You ask for children to work collectively on projects, not individually. You ask them to uh, up, up, uh, achieve socially beneficial ends through their education, not academic achievement applicable to them individually. So this is a radical, destructive, inherently destructive and ruinous um, way of treating our children. It's, in fact, in my view, child abuse, and it very clearly violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, it is by definition racist, even though uh, people like Ibram uh, Kendi or Kendi define it to be anti-racist. They actually call for racism to achieve equity, uh, which they then define as anti-racist. It's a it's a play. On, they play with words. They play with it's a semantic game, but it's very very destructive. Yeah. Um Back to the, the child abuse point, uh, you wrote that in the uh, op-ed. Um, you argue that critical race theory satisfies you know, the, the classic legal definitions of child abuse. Uh, you throw out, uh, you list a couple examples in the state of uh, different states. How in New York, a person responsible for mental abuse of a child is subject to criminal and civil penalties. In Rhode Island, child abuse occurs when a person responsible inflicts mental injury on a child or creates a substantial risk of mental injury. And uh, Rhode Island imposes criminal penalties for child abuse. Uh, same thing in California. It's unlawful to willfully cause a child to experience unjustifiable mental suffering punishable up by up to six years in prison. Um, so you're calling a child. Are you saying that we should be, uh, therefore, because it is child abuse, we should be, uh, or prosecutors should be filing criminal charges against school boards that approve of a CRT curriculum? Uh, you know, the administrators who implement it, the, the teachers who teach it. Um, is that what you're saying, that we should be uh, <laughs> bringing yeah, criminals? Be nice, uh, but unfortunately, the state has sovereign immunity, um, and those cases would likely be dismissed. However, 
there is a way, of course, of achieving the end. And that is, I, I believe people should be suing school boards, suing uh, state educational administrators, suing teachers who are teaching critical race theory and enjoining them from teaching this propaganda and this indoctrination uh, and seeking an injunction based on the, the fact that it is child abuse and that it also violates the Equal Protection Clause. Um, and so I think that through civil litigation, we can achieve the end of enjoining uh, the states or the uh, schools from teaching critical race theory that's one method of attack. I think it's a smart method. Uh, there's also the prospect of uh, organizing parents and, and working to create a, a majoritarian body that uh, kicks out uh, from the school board those who advocate CRT and replaces them with individuals who are opposed. And then the third way would be to pass legislation on the state level, as has been done in Florida, Idaho, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, uh, New Hampshire, Arizona, and South Carolina, and Iowa, that that bans the teaching of uh, critical race theory. Um, and because it is not education, but is propaganda, that is, is not a, it is not a recitation of facts, from history. It's a selective culling of those facts and distortion of them to fit a, a racist narrative. Um, and it, it is against the core values of our country. It, it, it opposes, uh, for example, the very definition of what it means to be an American, which is contained in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with unalienable rights to life, liberty, and property, and that governments are instituted among men to protect those rights, and that uh, just governments uh, derive their power, their just powers from the consent of the governed. All of those things are opposed by critical race theory. And so they're teaching our children to be anti-American. They're teaching them to hate their country and destroy it. And so this is not education. This is indoctrination. It is child abuse. And it needs to be legally enjoined either by uh, civil litigation or by legislation in the state level uh, or by acts of the state uh, of the uh, school boards to revoke, remove it from the curriculum and de and, and deny uh, the right to teach it, which has been done in Florida, Georgia, Utah, and Oklahoma. Now you're just talking about public schools, right? Not, not all schools, not private schools. Right. Private right. schools are also teaching CRT, and I would strongly recommend that parents who have their children in pub private schools that teach CRT uh, demand an end to it and take their children out of those schools if they don't go to other uh, private schools. Yeah. Uh, now, one... Um wouldn't it be possible if, if uh, you know, people on the right go down that road uh, the way uh, you're talking about? Um, would, theoretically possible that people on the left could uh, push back and say, well, um, in our view, uh, teaching this uh, sort of uh, whitewashed, rose-colored view of the Founding Fathers 
uh, or of uh, slavery in the States um, is uh, a form of uh, child abuse because it makes, um, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, uh, it makes uh, 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 black children feel marginalized or, you know, something like that. Uh, yeah, that's their argument. Uh, I so. mean, but, but uh, I mean, so isn't that, I mean, we're just sort of, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of their opinion against, uh, you know, of what is uh, or what part of the curriculum is or isn't child abuse. And <laughs> so like, uh, no, know, your opinion. Actually, actually not. And the reason is that uh, they're not teaching a fact based curriculum. In other words, they are not teaching anything that can be provably tied to uh, American history uh, in any serious way. And they have been severely criticized by academics in their, in the, you know, even liberal academics, for the failure to teach uh, the facts and allow the kids to derive their own conclusions. In other words, theirs is a, is a, a propaganda uh, there's a distinction between propaganda and education. Uh, if we don't recognize that distinction, then uh, the entire educational initiative is, 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 is bunk. And there's a good argument to be made for that in public schools. That is to say, the origins of public schools with John Dewey, as I explain in the book, is, is, is derived out of this concept of Hegelian collectivism. And as a consequence, this collectivism, uh, Dewey wanted public education to essentially turn children into Fabian socialists, but the school boards restrained, uh, largely restrained that from happening by insisting on control over the curriculum and insisting that a fact-based curriculum be used. Our history of education in this country from the origins of the Republic forward has dealt, has, has largely given children a full understanding of the American Revolution the goals that were to be achieved and the objectives uh, from the origins with 1776 and the Declaration of Independence uh, through the American Revolution. And and then again, uh, with testing of the institution of slavery and of states' rights in the Civil War, but presenting those things as facts and not denying children the right to derive their own opinions and understanding of the meaning of these things, actually fostering and encouraging debate, uh, which was thought to be in prior years, even by uh, liberals, to be the goal of education. That is to thinking. Critical thinking was the goal of education, not dogmatic adherence to a, 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 a monoclonal view of the world. The critical race theory does not permit dissent, right. does not allow any dissent. So it is propagandistic by definition because it does not allow dissent. It does not treat children equally. Therefore, it's racism. It uh, treats children differently predicated upon their race. So it's not just uh, a propaganda. It's also a racist system designed to divide children predicated on their pigment and therefore it violates the equal protection clause so in in the zone of academic freedom which is i think where you're coming from um 
you know, the idea is that we allow every viewpoint uh, an opportunity for expression, or if not expression, uh, we allow each viewpoint to be uh, treated with respect. Um, and that is antithetical to what CRT is all about. Indeed, it's contrary to its very purpose. So um, there is a, a, a significant distinction, which is that uh, education that educates children about the American Revolution, about the Civil War, about the meaning of the uh, contesting parties and their and 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 the actual historical facts related to those events um, are are fair uh, uh, history properly construed uh, and not propagandistic, particularly when you don't demand the children, uh, adhere to a viewpoint, right? But with regard to CRT, it is it is intolerant of dissent, and it is propaganda because it is a false and distorted view of history. Yeah, I'm just trying to uh, envision what uh, the left would uh, say in response. For, for example, um, so I had uh, on the podcast about uh, six months or so ago, maybe a little more, uh, the historian James Oakes, um, who was one of the, uh, the five historians, distinguished historians, who signed the uh, open letter to the New York Times right. um, about the, the falsifications in the 1619 project. He was one of the ones that, uh, uh, there was that uh, Trotskyist website, the World Socialist website. He was one of the ones that sat down for the interview that really got the ball rolling on that yes. whole thing with that. Um, and, uh, I mean, he's a very distinguished historian. He's won the, the Lincoln prize, um, uh, twice. That's a prize that goes out to the author who's written the best book on Lincoln or the civil war area over that yeah. year period. Uh, yeah, he's I'm, one, he's one of like three people who's won the award multiple times. Anyway. Yeah. So, uh, we were talking about the 1619 project and obviously he's highly critical of it. And, um, uh, and he is actually, um, I think he pretty much admitted to me on the podcast that he's, uh, He's, he's pretty much a socialist himself. Uh, he just, and it's not that he's, he's just, as a professional historian, it's just the 1619 Project is just wrong on its history. And no matter the, the merits of what uh, the 1619 Project is trying to do, it's still just really poor, uh, bad history. And I asked him about the, uh, for example, like the 1776 report. Uh, now, I haven't had a chance to read it uh, even yet, but he had read it, and uh, I asked him about it, and um, he essentially, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he essentially said that it's its sort of the same thing. its, it's it Basically, it's propaganda of, of the right-wing form, uh, that it's not an honest, uh, the 1776 report in itself is also not an honest uh, view of history, in his opinion. Um, so, uh, my point is, so, so well, we can say that the 1619 project and critical race theory is propaganda. And, and in my mind, it, it, uh, 100% obviously is, uh, the point is what is to stop them from saying, well, you know, if you, if you wanted to teach, uh, on the guidelines of the 1776 report for them to say, well, um, you know, this is our view that this is propaganda itself and we have. XYZ uh, distinguished historian who uh, agrees with us on those points, and therefore this can't be taught in, in schools either. 
Well, the, the, the fundamental distinction is that uh, they are relying upon racism. Remember, they mm -hmm. view race as the means by which to define history, right? They start with racial division as an assumption, and then they insist that racial division exists, and they argue all history, all uh, science, all mathematics, all uh, sociology, all human relationships are defined by race. All right, uh, that is legally forbidden by the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, the Equal Protection Clause. We may not distinguish people mm -hmm. in, in the public context, in school, based on race. We may not treat them differently based on race. We but may we do. Not <laughs> they do. I mean, that affirmative action, they do that, you know, all the time. Exactly. Yeah. And, the, and affirmative action has variously, <laughs> rightly been, uh, in instances where it's been struck down, mm -hmm. it is rightly construed under the 14th Amendment. But the point is that um, it, this is principally a means by which to uh, inject racism, intentionally racism, into education, and that that is forbidden by the 14th Amendment. But in addition, I disagree with um, Professor Oakes on uh, the uh, 1776 project. Um, I don't agree with him that that is uh, you know, that that is propaganda at all. I, I, I might have been putting words in his mouth if he's by saying propaganda. I was just using that sort of yeah. an example. I, I mean, he uh, from what I'm I've heard, he basically said he didn't believe the history or that they that the history of the 1776 project was uh, was a he thought it was a, a sort well, of a falsified right wing narrative of yeah, history. From the vantage point of a socialist, he would think that. Um, however, from the vantage point of someone who is objective, who is not a socialist, a socialist is an extremist by definition, is a person who believes in uh, a form of governance and relationships that are antithetical to the core values of the Constitution. The Constitution in Article 4, Section 4 guarantees every state a republican form of government. Uh, a republic is by definition not a socialist state. In fact, it's quite the contrary. Rights are defined as unalienable from God and uh, individual as opposed to the socialist state in which all rights come from the government and are collective and there is no individual right to defense against government. So if he is indeed a socialist, his viewpoint then would be that that world, world frame is uh, appropriately imposed on others. Um, why he would disagree with uh, critical race theory, there are reasons. I think a far leftist might disagree with critical race theory, but I think he probably would find many points uh, uh, to his liking. I come from the vantage point of individual rights. I live in a society uh, in which I understood there to be a constitution that protected individual rights. Education is a public endeavor primarily in this country. To the extent that it is, the government is disarmed of power to uh, uh, inject racism into education. It must treat all children equally, regardless of their race. And it may have a meritocracy because it's individual achievement, but that's not with regard to race. When you dampen down meritocracy or deny it based on racial considerations, 
you instantaneously violate the 14th Amendment because it's absolutely forbidden. Um, the same would be true on the federal level with the Fifth Amendment. Because of the equal protection component of the Fifth Amendment, the, fifth, the uh, uh, federal government may not force, for example, troops to accept racist views as a basis for their uh, uh, ability to remain in the, the armed, ser armed forces of this country. It's a, de a power denied of government. Now, as you point out, a private school could choose to be a Marxist school. It could choose to be a, a, a 1776 propaganda school if there is such a thing. Uh, it could be that way, but not a public school. A public school takes all comers and is denied the power to inject racism into education. It hasn't that option. Therefore, CRT is an unconstitutional and illegal enterprise. But more importantly uh, than the semantic argument I'm making is the reality that it is destroying the sense of self-worth of children regardless of their race. It is making white children believe that they're victimizers and that they're inherently so by virtue of their pigment. And it's making children of color think that no matter what they do, no matter what they learn, no matter how talented they are, they will never succeed in America because America is systemically racist. This is rot. I mean, we all know this is ahistorical or anti-historical. We can go through history and identify any number of individuals who are Asians, who are black, who are Hispanic, or who are Native Americans who have achieved magnificently and have distinguished themselves in, in all manner of fields of endeavor. And that is in large measure and no small uh, byproduct of the civil rights era, Martin Luther King's philosophy, which uh, took hold. But also, even when we had slavery, even when we had uh, uh, a, a systemically racist society in the slave era in the antebellum South, we still had individuals who were capable of achieving and achieving magnificently. As I point out in the book, uh, it's, a, it's a falsehood of the 1619 Project and of the CRT advocates and of their education that only blacks were slaves in America. There were white slaves in America. Uh, there, indeed, in, in 1619 in the Jamestown colony, while there were 20 black slaves who arrived around Eastern time, uh, four months before they arrived, there were 100 white slaves who were indentured servants as well. And indeed, over the course of the Jamestown colony, while it still existed, the overwhelming majority of individuals in servitude in Jamestown were white, not black. And in addition, uh, in, the, in 1830, in the it, just as an example, in 1830, uh, there were roughly 3,000 blacks who owned 20 or more slaves in America. And they were manumitted uh, blacks who formerly were in slavery. Uh, and then in addition, by 1860, uh, there were so many blacks in this country who owned slaves. In Louisiana in 1860, Antoine Dubuclet owned over 100 black slaves had the most successful plantation in Louisiana uh, and was black. 
So slavery is an abomination, but it has affected blacks and whites together. And it has affected them equally with regard to uh, the condition and, and race. That is to say, there were white slaves, there were white slave owners, there were black slaves, there were black right, slaves. But, but the white slaves, they were indentured servants, which is a little, uh, it's a different, you know, well, sort actually, of... No. So, actually, no, and here's why, if you look at the history. Remember that the 20 black slaves in Jamestown were indentured servants as well. They were not called slaves. They were called indentured servants. They were treated as slaves. The indentured servants in Jamestown, whether white or black, were treated equally as slaves. In fact, indentured servants throughout the colonial period were slaves. And here's why. At the at the wish of their owners. If you look at the court cases where people said, look, I served my indenture and I should be freed now. Those cases almost universally in the colonial era ended up favoring whatever position was taken by the slave owner, which was uh, fully in favor of perpetual indenture. And so, for example, um, uh, a gentleman named Johnson, uh, who was a slave in Jamestown, was manumitted because he, it is believed he committed a heroic act in defense of his slave owner who manumitted him as a complement of that. He was an indentured servant. He was black. He came to acquire over 20 black slaves, five actually, five, I'm sorry, five black slaves, one of whom sued him for his freedom. The court held against him because it said in agreement with Anthony Johnson was his name, in agreement with Anthony Johnson, that he did not serve in the manner that Anthony Johnson had expected. That is to say, his work was not what Anthony Johnson thought satisfactory during the time of his indenture. Therefore, his indenture is lifted in the sense that he is now perpetually an indentured servant. And that was the order of the court. But that was typical so that any indentured servant in this country in the colonial period was more apt to be and more appropriately called a slave. And so I don't fault the uh, 1619 Project authors for saying that the 20 Blacks who came to Jamestown were slaves, even though they were, in fact, indentured servants, because they were treated indistinguishably. Right. Well, I'm just saying my point is the, the differences between indentured servitude and, and chattel slavery is with indentured servitude, no, no matter what a uh, uh, slave court's going to rule, there is the hope that, you know, that one day you will be uh, a free man, a free woman. Whereas um, if you're born into chattel slavery, uh, that hope does not exist other than on the uh, either you run away or the benevolence of your of your owner. Um, uh, you know that either you if, if not for those things, you're you're going to die a slave. Your children, well, will, your children will be born and die slaves. Their children will be born and die slaves, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, there, certainly was, there certainly was a hope on the part of those who. Uh, entered into the contracts of indenture. But when you read the contracts of indenture from the time, you see very readily, if you're a lawyer particularly, that it was impossible to escape the indenture. In other words, the terms of indenture were all liberally written in favor of the owner and against the indentured servant, such that anything could result in the indentured servant, virtually anything, if the indentured servant married without the uh, 
uh, consent of the uh, owner if the indentured servant failed to perform work considered satisfactory by the owner or if the indentured servant committed any act that was considered amoral, immoral, or criminal, that was sufficient to make the indenture perpetual. So, so do you those, know what percentage of uh, indentured servants um, receive their freedom? Oh, yes, there are individual. We don't know the percentage, but we do know that individuals did receive their freedom, but that was only at the... Uh, essentially the desire of the owner. It had virtually nothing to do with the contract of indenture. So, for example, an individual who, who performed work well might be given their freedom, right? If, the, if they generated a considerable amount of wealth for the owner and the old owner in old age wanted to uh, be kind to that person. So it's very much humanistic, right? Very much based on the individual predisposition of a person. But let's point out that that happened with both blacks and whites. In other words, Anthony Johnson, as I pointed out, was liberated from his indenture, yet then became a slave owner himself. He was black. He was owned by a white person. But, and there are many other instances. For example, there, there are instances where uh, cotton gin owners who are white would have indentured servants who were black. In one instance, the indentured servant who was black was extremely good at uh, the manufacture of cotton gins, innovated enormously, uh, uh, making them far more efficient. And at the death of the, his, the person to whom he was indentured, he was liberated. And he then took over, he actually took the name of his slave owner, his owner, and became a free man, but he then owned indentured servants himself, and they were treated as slaves, being his indentured servants, way past the time of their indenture, all the way to the end of their lives. So it's very, very hard to distinguish between indentured servants and slaves in the colonial period, and efforts to do so are fraught with uh, uh, modern-day presumptions which con are contradicted by the facts of indenture at the time. So why did slave owners uh, stop using uh, the, the indentured uh, servitude system sort of uh, fizzles out over time and uh, it eventually just entirely moves into uh, you know, black chattel slavery? Why, uh, why did that move happen? Well, we have Dred Scott, of course, um, where an individual based on their status as a, as a black slave it would be denied um, freedom. Uh, and then we had fugitive slave laws. And what really triggered it were slave rebellions. Um, and in the latter half of the uh, 1600s, there was a famous slave rebellion in Virginia. And what happened was, uh, in response to that, uh, white slave owners believed that they needed to create a distance between black slaves who are the most valuable slaves. They were most costly on the auction block and they were, um, you know, a loss would, could be a substantial financial loss. And uh, white slaves who previously were treated worse, particularly the Irish slaves, because they were far cheaper to acquire than black slaves on the auction block. So what they did an about face 
and that was to put white overseers who were slaves, they were indentured servants, uh, over blacks in, in the fields. And this began to occur in the late 1600s and increasingly continued in the 1700s somewhat. It was incremental. But by the time of the late 1830s on, it had become an institution, a social institution. It had become a, 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 a it, it was a defining social characteristic in the South, such that blacks were considered. Uh, by the time John C. Calhoun was speaking in Congress in defense of the institution, the mudsill, that is to say, the lowest level of servitude, indispensable, he said, to the progress of Southern society. And so it became both a social norm and an economic norm. Um, and then that perpetuated the cruel institution. But the point, the point is that in our collective experience in this country, whites know slavery, blacks know slavery. What all should consider it an abomination, regardless of what race you are. And it is a false narrative from the 1619 Project and BLM and and uh, and CRT that we are we that slavery is uniquely to be viewed as an institution of whites suppressing blacks because because it can't be viewed that uh, accurately historically. Yeah, there's a lot of racial narcissism <laughs> exactly. in those uh, involved in those projects. But anyway, uh, we're, we've gone actually. Pretty, pretty long, pretty over uh, uh, time. So uh, let's sort of just wrap it up. Um, just, but uh, just to get back to the the, the book itself and back to uh, CRT, um, you've talked about. Uh, you've already answered a little bit how to, you know, how people can combat uh, critical race theory. Uh, but how do uh, how do Americans go about, um, you know, trying to restore constitutional government? How do they how do they fight back against uh, the authoritarians? Well, first, they have to know what the Constitution means. Uh, They have to understand our history. They have to understand that uniquely in all the world, uh, this Lockean revolution that took place in the United States or actually in the colonies in the 1770s that became begot the United States um, is unique and extraordinarily valuable. This was the first instance in the history of the world in which individual rights uh, defined what the purpose of government was. That is to say that governments were instituted among men to protect the rights of the governed, as the Declaration explains. And this notion of individual rights, that we are given them by God, not by man, not by the state, that they are unalienable, is something that all people should in America understand as an educational foundation uh, and they should appreciate just how extraordinary that is. So long as we remain a people and, the, and we are threatened in this way, but so long as we remain a people possessed of individual rights and individual sovereignty derived from those rights. And so long as the government remains the people's servant uh, and is strictly controlled and limited in its powers by a constitution that has separation of powers and has uh, powers delineated and respected for those delineations, we may be free. And 
it is a brilliant understanding of Locke and the radical Whigs in England that freedom is the indispensable characteristic of mankind. We cleave to freedom as our very, very, our very nature leads us to wish to possess freedom of conscience, freedom to choose, and not to be in a state of servitude. And socialism, CRT, which is but a branch of Marxism, all of these other and the divine right of kings, all of these are predicated on the same fundamental notion that individuals ought not be free, but need to be directed, that the state needs to tell them what to do with their lives, their time and their energy, and that service to the state is the highest achievement, not individual advancement, self-fulfillment. Uh, and the problem with that is that it leads invariably to a state of slavery, which we should all condemn. But if you truly oppose racism and you truly oppose slavery, then you would believe in the foundational principles in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. And you would stand for those and would fight for those. And so I'm hopeful that as this Biden administration pushes the nation off the left side of the spectrum so far that freedom is taken from us in all manner, uh, across many, many, many planes, um, that we will be reminded uh, of those ties to our historic foundation and freedom and will return to it by rejecting socialism from the Biden administration and from Congress and choosing to favor people who, fa who advance the cause of liberty. And that should define our votes because we're at a precipice now. We used to be able to take for granted to a high, higher degree, not completely, that uh, those who governed us re would respect our individual rights and sovereignty. We cannot take that for granted today. And increasingly, everything that is done by government is to deprive us of our freedoms to advance a collectivist end said to be in the public interest or for the common good. Okay, great. Well, uh, before we go, is there uh, anything else you got going on you'd like to plug? Any uh, uh, social media, anything like that? Uh, you want to well, get out uh, there? I, well, I, I write um, fairly frequently uh, for USA Today magazine, PJ Media, um, and uh, variously appear on broadcast media. Uh, there is a uh, event, the Health Freedom Expo in Chicago on October 1st and 2nd. I'll be there for book signing and also to speak. Uh, there is um, an event on September the 21st that you can access through Eventbrite, which is an anti-CRT event um, that's being held with many of the principal opponents of CRT from across the country who will be speaking, 10 of them speak for increments of 10 minutes. It'll also be uh, live streamed um, on the 21st. Okay, great. Well, uh, again, our uh, guest today has been uh, Mr. Jonathan Emord. He is the author 
of a uh, opinion piece in the uh, latest issue of uh, School Reform News, which we publish here at Heartland. Uh, it's called uh, Critical Race Theory is False and Endangers Fundamental Rights. Um, I'm not sure if the new issue of School Reform News is gone. I think it might. I think it's the September issue it's going to be in. So um, it's up on the website now, so you can find it on the website, at the Heartland website under uh, you know, Heartland Daily News, so you can uh, check it there. Uh, then it should go out, the PDFs and everything, and then the actual paper should go out uh, at some point in, in September. And then he is also the author of the book, The Authoritarians, Their Assault on Individual Liberty, the Constitution, and Free Enterprise from the 19th Century to the Present. So uh, make sure you check that out, too. Uh, and uh, Mr. Emord, uh, thank you very much for coming on the, coming on the podcast. Uh, it was very... Uh, very lightning, uh, uh, very fun conversation. So uh, thanks again for coming on. Well, thank you, Tim. I, I've enjoyed it. And uh, again, if you like this podcast, uh, please uh, make sure to leave us a five-star review and to share with your friends. And uh, if you have uh, uh, any questions for me, you can uh, reach out to me at uh, tbensonandheartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to uh, heartland.org. So Thanks again, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Take care.